Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. It was a surprise decision issued by Australia's Minister of Health to ban the personal importation of liquid nicotine for vaping. The order was issued just under two weeks before it was to go into effect on July 1st, leaving little time for harm reduction activists to mount an effective challenge to a law that could drive tens of thousands of vapors back to smoking. Under growing pressure, Health Minister Greg Hunt buckled and announced a delay on the ban on importing nicotine. However, the fight to legalize vaping is far from over. Joining us today on RegWatch to talk about that fight is Dr. Colin Mendelson, founder, founding chairman of the Australian Tobacco Harm Reduction Association and member of the expert advisory group that developed the Australian National Smoking Cessation Guidelines. Dr. Mendelson, thanks for coming back on RegWatch. Thank you, Brett. Lovely to see you. Oh, it's good to see you too, and it's been an extraordinarily stressful week and a half for vapors in Australia. Now we know there is tremendous opposition to vaping down under. Explain for our viewers what the government tried to pull off with their ban on vaping. Yes, well, look, the situation in Australia is that there is a total ban on the sale and possession of nicotine in Australia. It's a criminal offence to possess nicotine without a prescription. And what vapors have generally been doing is illegally importing uh, nicotine from overseas or buying it on the black market. It's legal with a prescription, but almost all vapors are unable to get a prescription. So we had this sudden announcement on Friday the 19th of June that uh, personal importation of nicotine uh, for vaping would be uh, a criminal offence which would attract a $220,000 penalty. So Australia's 300,000 vapors were extremely uh, distressed about that. Um, the government did allow a legal pathway for nicotine importation. This was, however, involved the comp a doctor's prescription, but it was complex, time-consuming and unworkable. So doctors had to apply to the TGA online. They had to wait for approval. They had to get import permits. Um, nicotine could, had to be imported by a third party organization um, or, or by the doctor or by the pharmacist. It was just unworkable. And only six or seven doctors currently write prescriptions anyway. So under these onerous circumstances, no one would, would write prescriptions, I, I would have thought. So it was essentially a de facto ban. And look, I think it was just as easy for, a lot easier for smokers just to go next door and buy a cigarette. And that's what most plan to do. So let's back, let's back it up for people who haven't been fully following what's been going on in Australia. But for all intents and purposes, as you said, there's been pretty much a ban. I, I think for vapors to understand, you'd actually have to import your own liquid nicotine in order right. to be able to use e-cigarettes. Yeah, that's right. So nicotine in Australia is regarded as a dangerous poison and it's a criminal offence to possess it without a prescription. Um, so what most of our vapors have done is simply import it illegally, uh, taking a risk, uh, and possessing nicotine without a prescription involves uh, fines of up to $45,000 and even potentially jail terms of up to two years. So we, we've had almost united opposition to vaping in Australia through all our health departments, our national regulator, our peak health bodies, our health charities, the AMA, and, and, and virtually across the board, uh, 
there's been this group think that vaping is is a big problem and should be should be totally disallowed we're showing here some of the groups in australia that you know universal opposition that's pretty strong yeah um it, it is and you know unfortunately what that means is that it's very hard for any individual group or an individual to step out of line and and to to break away from that groupthink and it makes it a lot harder for the, the government and the minister for health in particular to to uh, make a decision to allow vaping because if he does there's a, likely to be a huge political backlash and a lot of pressure from these um, uh, lobby groups these vested interests that that are strongly opposed to vaping so you had mentioned that uh, there are 300,000 vapors who've used vaping as a quit aid or a safer alternative to smoking. And we've pulled this from one of your blog posts. For most yeah. of yeah, for most it will it will now be almost impossible to access nicotine. Many will return to smoking and this is under the auspices of what the government had just proposed just yes. a short 10 days ago. That's right. Look, vapors were devastated by this. Um I saw 15 vapors last Monday, last Monday week, and I asked them what they'd do if nicotine wasn't available. 13 of them said they would go back to smoking. I mean, they were shocked because they realised finally that, you know, having tried to quit for smoking for years and years and finally finding a, a strategy that worked for them, suddenly the, it was going to be taken away. And um, they were angry, they were anxious, they, they were devastated. And I think it galvanised smokers to to take some action, uh, vapors to take some action uh, against this very unjust law. And so we have some of the. Let's walk us through here a little bit about your uh, how you'd characterized this new law, which has been delayed. But let's get to the delayed part in a second. So yeah. if the new law had come in, please explain. Yeah, <clears throat> if the law, <coughs> excuse me, if the law had come in it would have been illegal to bring nicotine into the country as a vapor. So it would require, <coughs> sorry, onerous um, and complex procedures for vapors to be able to do that legally. If they brought it in illegally, the fine was $220,000 just to bring it through customs. And in effect, it was a, a de facto ban. So we had comments from vapors saying they would fly to New Zealand to get nicotine. We had people saying they would commit self-harm as a response to this. And most people said they would return to smoking. But vape shops were devastated. You know, without nicotine, the whole vape industry would collapse. And, and that would be the end of vaping in Australia. How, so, how big is the industry there? With, uh, considering, so obviously a vape shop can't sell complete uh, e-juice. They can only sell one port, part of it, right? Yeah, so the vape shops sell the devices and they sell nicotine-free e-liquids. So vapors import high concentrations of nicotine to mix with their e-liquid. And that in itself is a big problem because we have uh, uh, bottles of high concentration of nicotine which are not childproof, which are being imported, which you know substantially increase the risk of poisoning and, and harm. So... 
What I'm trying to get figure out here is that what is the actual difference between the law before and the law after? Because before you still had to get a prescription from a doctor, but it sounds like that you could at least import the nicotine without having to produce said prescription. Is it was it is really just the fines went up and the fact that they were going to have some more uh, kind of an enforcement mechanism to make sure that there was a connection between the prescription and the importation? Is that really what it was? Yes. Look, there was a change in the customs law. So that meant that all parcels were going to be scanned. If a vapor tried to bring in nicotine for personal use, they would be fined $220,000. So they couldn't get their own nicotine. And they had to go through a complex process, which wasn't going to work, which would essentially mean they couldn't get nicotine in Australia. Right, right. So there wasn't anything more, there wasn't an extension of the animus towards vaping. Uh, it was just more of an, an actually enforcing the animus. Well, it was taking it further, yeah. It was, it was taking it further so that it would be virtually impossible to get nicotine and, you know, leaving vapors with no choice but to, to uh, go to the black market or, or, or to go back to smoking, and, and that's what most people were going to do. So it, it, the, the practical implications were, were very severe and, and it was quite a step up from what we had before. Now, who was pushing this? Because explain the government kind of situation for those that are unfamiliar. Look, it's interesting. Our government party, the leading party in office, the Liberal National Party, most members of the party are actually in favour of vaping. And in a party room meeting in September last year, uh, the health minister was challenged and the members of parliament said, look, we, we actually mostly believe that this should be available. The health minister is very opposed to vaping, however. He has strong personal views and he takes advice from, you know, the, the authorities, the health authorities and other uh, lobby groups who, who are opposed to vaping. And for him to, to introduce vaping would create major political risk. And, and he'd, be, he'd be hammered by these uh, opposition groups. So as a compromise, he said, look, we'll do this is back in September 18, he said, we'll do a scientific inquiry, and he commissioned that. And Australia paid $750,000 for that inquiry, which incidentally had no terms of reference, unbelievably, no terms of reference. Then what happened was, all of a sudden, out of the blue, before the inquiry had reported, and that's coming later in the year, the minister decided that he would take unilateral action to block vaping, before he had the official report. And people were very upset about that. Now, you've also had these guidelines uh, that I mentioned in the lead. And just a little backtrack here, when you were on the show in January of this year, it was actually to share some good news that the Royal College of General Practitioners, which represents, you know, the GPs, the average doctor that the average Australian meets, you know, for general health care, so it's a pretty big deal that they had come out and said that, you know, as a result of this process, and I'll let you pick it up here, that that they were recommending if you couldn't quit, uh, it, it turned in, it was a last resort, you know, they would recommend vaping. It was a softened position. It was a policy shift. But then as soon as that kind of announcement was out, they kind of tried to grab you and really back in a little bit with regards to just how much they were recommending vaping. So bring us back to that because yeah. that must be playing a role here. Yes. Look, what happened was the College of GPs reviewed the evidence 
uh, and the evidence was convincing. Um, they did the meta-analysis that found that uh, vaping was at least 80% more effective than nicotine replacement products. And the guidelines stated that uh, under certain circumstances, if a patient had tried other methods to quit and couldn't and asked the GP about vaping and they were having full consent, it would be a reasonable choice. So we, we promoted this as saying, look, the college has endorsed vaping for the, under these circumstances. There was a huge backlash from the college and I think it was largely political. But the college president has repeatedly said, we do not endorse vaping. We, we do not support vaping. It's only available as a very uh, occasional option under very limited circumstances. So even though the guidelines I thought were quite clear and I was on the committee that developed them, the college, I think for political reasons, didn't want to be seen to be supporting vaping. Yeah, I mean, they clear say, we've got their... Since then as well, the Royal Australasian College of Physicians has also come out in favour of vaping. Although I think there's some ambivalence about that, but you know, there is some progress at least being made. Previously, we had very little support, except from the Royal Austra this Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, which actually have very strong views about vaping because they can see their patients you know, get better from their mental illness and die from smoking. So they're strongly in in support, but getting support from other medical groups um, is has been slow. The AMA has been very outspoken about vaping and strongly, strongly against it. Strongly against it, right. And in the US, that's similar Canada too as well, though I think the doctors are a bit more quiet here. They're not as political. It's amazing how, how the more political you are, the more vocal you are on vaping if you're a doctor. It's a little inexplicable in our mind. So jump to um, what we just had here with Minister Hunt. And I'm gonna put up here on the screen that the RACGP, so we're talking about the Royal College of General Practitioners, um, through its support behind the move. So oh. they, they actually fully supported this, what is would have been an all right, an all out ban. Uh, yes, it will now recently, yes, when the ban, ban, you mean with the latest announcement? Yes, exactly. Yeah, look, the college, exactly. They, they even went out, they went back on their previous decision to say, well, yes, we, we, we think this is a good thing. Um, you know, they're kind of backpedaling, uh, which is just very disappointing when you know, the evidence from their own review showed that vaping had a valuable role to help uh, smokers quit in Australia. So is it, is, it, is it leadership at the top or is, or is this the whole organization? Like where is the disconnect? Because frankly, I know that myself and many, many citizens of this world are a little upset by having such inconsistent messaging from these organizations that are supposed to be concerned about our health. So if one, if the, if there's guidelines, how come we're not following them? Yeah, look, opposition to vaping in Australia has been very strong for many years. I mean, we've got a very strict regulatory environment. The opposition I think is based on unspoken issues. It's about, an abstinence-only approach in Australia. You know, we, we people shouldn't be using nicotine. They shouldn't be smoking under any circumstances. That's the way we've always dealt with smoking. Um, there are political factors. Um, there are financial factors. Smoking generates $17 billion a year in tobacco excise, and that's our fourth largest tax 
So that's a factor. There are moral judgments, you know, nicotine, people shouldn't be using addictive drugs. Um, there are lots of vested interests um, and, you know, all that's going on behind the scenes. Um, so I don't think decisions are being made on the evidence. I mean, when you look at the evidence, I think it's a no-brainer. Um, but, um, and people say the, the government's policy has always been, look, we'll take a precautionary approach, which basically means we've looked at the evidence and seen that there are some risks. So we're not going to take a chance for another 30 years until we have clear evidence. But, you know, they don't look at the other side of the equation, which of course is the enormous public health potential of vaping. So I'd like to, um, you know, bring your attention here back to one of the main stories with the announcement from the government. And I, this is the government's announcement. The Minister for Health, the Honourable Greg Hunt, requested that the Department of Health to work with the Australian Border Force on a new approach to regulating e-cigarettes containing vaporizer nicotine. The prohibition would remain in place for 12 months to allow for public consultation on the regulation in Australia of nicotine products. So I bring this up because, you know, it, it haven't they studied this enough? Ha, has there not been enough study? And that being the case, just a 12-month thing, it almost feels like it's designed to just eradicate whatever's last of the industry that's left in Australia, yeah, exactly. just snuff it right out, and then it doesn't really matter after. Oh, it's just a 12-month prohibition, you know, which just... Yeah, yeah. I mean, who has a ban and then has consultation? I mean, that's, that's not... <laughs> Clearly the Australian government. Apparently. Yeah. So, so what would happen if, if this was introduced would be that, A, most vapors would go back to smoking, and B, the industry would disappear. So even if they um, decided to allow vaping later on, uh, there'd be no industry. So, you know, there'd be no, no it's, uh, retail outlets to provide the juices, to provide advice, to provide the, the equipment that people need to vape. So it would, be, it, would be, it would destroy the industry and it would take a long time for things to recover, which was, I think, the intention. Clearly. And so let's start talking about the fight back because clearly you guys did fight back. There was a movement that came up pretty quickly. Tell us about that. Yeah, look, there was such an outcry from bakers. I mean, they were absolutely outraged. And look, the most frequent comment I heard was, this is just a cynical grab for money by the government. Um, and whether that's true, I don't know, but that's the response that vapors made because you know, you could go to the corner store and buy cigarettes, which kill up to two and three users. But here we were banning a far safer product with proven effectiveness in helping people quit. And the vapors could see that. They quit having tried for years and years, felt fantastic, were much healthier, saving a pocket full of money. And, and the government was saying, oh, no, no, you can't quit that way. You have to quit the other way, which it is less effective. So people were outraged. So in response to this, several of uh, the pro-vaping lobby groups got together. Uh, we formed a, a, a coalition of ATHRA, which is the Australian Tobacco Harm Reduction Association, which is a health promotion charity, Legalised Vaping, which is a, um, a libertarian uh, uh, advocacy group uh, under the Australian Taxpayers Association, um, Avia, which is our industry group, and another public health group, Progressive Public Health Association of Australia. And, and we decided to challenge this in a coordinated way. So 
we put out media releases. Um, we informed vapors who contacted their local MPs. And I have to say that was extraordinary to get vapors mobilized. So what happened was they virtually melted the phone lines of the members of the parliament, their local members uh, and the health minister. And they made it very clear that this was um, a, an important political issue which would have political repercussions. Um, and, and they were fighting for their lives. They, they were, were very concerned and willing to, to take part. Uh, we set up a fighting fund which took donations towards this um, campaign. Uh, there was a social media campaign with a hashtag uh, to, to, to give people a voice. Uh, we formed a video campaign so vapors put videos of their personal story online. Um, vape shops contacted their customers to uh, get them motivated. Um, opinion pieces were published. Uh, there were outspoken comments from media personalities. Um, and then I think the key event occurred, which was that two of the government MPs opposed the party line and prepared a petition to support vaping. So they put this online. So Senator Matt Canavan and George Christensen, an MP from Queensland, prepared a petition. And there were over 70,000 signatures in less than two days, which was unprecedented. 70,000? 70, 70, Hold on. I just want to make sure we get that. 70,000. Yeah. 70,000. Wow. Petitions in, in less than two days. I mean, which showed you know, how important this was. This was a real, you know, vote-changing issue. A lot of these people um, would vote on this issue alone because vaping has been essential in, in their survival uh, and in their health. And, and I think people were really distressed that they were being told that they couldn't use a life-saving treatment which uh, would have addressed the addiction that they've been struggling with all these years. So these were gov these are government MPs. So this is a backbencher revolt, then, isn't it? It's a revolt. It was, and I think the key the key turning point was when twenty eight ministers of the government party uh, wrote a letter to the health minister uh, saying, "Look, this is really unacceptable. We, you know, we strongly encourage you to consider um, re reversing this decision." And and I think that made the prime minister and the health minister quite concerned. And, and I think soon after that, we saw the uh, the reversal announced. So it was a straight up, we vape, we vote. Exactly, exactly. I think they made that very clear that they were single issue voters, many of them. And, and, and there was concern in the community. I think the vapors up till now hadn't really had a voice and the government thought, oh, well, we can, we can make our own decisions. Uh, no one seems to be so worried about this. There's only a few hundred thousand vapors. Uh, we'll just bring this through. But once, but vapors became galvanised, and and I think the response is very much to their credit that they made their voices heard, ringing MPs, writing letters to to uh, newspapers, and and going on some social media and 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 expressing their their concern. How surprised do you think the opposition to vaping uh, were uh, based on the sophisticated, I would call this a sophisticated rea uh, you know, reaction here? Yeah, look, I, I think they were surprised. I, I think 
What's been happening over the last five years is we've been campaigning against this very unjust uh, situation. Australia is the only Western country to ban the sale and use of vaping. And in Australia, our, our smoking rates have not been declining for six years, since 2013. And, and, and the standard message from health authorities and pro-harm pro reduction groups is, well, people, we need to double down and just do more of what we're doing. So we need to get people to um, use medication, um, try and quit smoking in, in, in the way we've always told them to do. And um, they, that's clearly not working. And if, if we're going to meet our smoking targets, uh, we're going to need new and more effective uh, methods. For example, uh, we set a, a target in Australia of 10% uh, vaping, 10% smoking back in 2012. Now, the smoking rate in Australia is still 15.2%, so we're way off that target. And clearly what we're doing isn't working. And I think any, any sensible person would look at that and say, well, well, this isn't working. Just telling people to do more of the same thing is not going to be effective. And as this graph shows, Smoking rates in Australia um, are fairly static, whereas in other countries like the UK and the US, they're falling faster than ever. And, you know, that's not entirely due to vaping, but it's certainly a major contributor. And, and Australia needs to get on board. We have very low vaping rates, 1.2% at the, the last uh, national survey. And, you know, the lowest rate in, in the Western the Western world, and you know, it's been calculated that if uh, if uh, most vapors, most smokers switched to vaping in, in Australia, there'd be at least five hundred thousand premature deaths averted, based on the, the Levy study from the, the US. So you know, this is clearly going to make a difference, and it, it seems almost criminal to to deny uh, smokers that opportunity. Yeah, no, I, obviously we agree with that. It's just astonishing the level of opposition in Australia to this being, being in Canadian and from Canada, you know, we share a lot of similarities in terms of cultures and, yeah. and background. And, you know, the opposition here is nowhere near the same. However, it is pretty stiff though. Yes, I know. Look, it's a big change. Like new, 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 new disruptive technologies, um, uh, and, and different ways of doing things, there's always that status quo bias. You mentioned Canada in New Zealand, uh, which is you know, our, our closest neighbour and, and you know, our New Zealand cousins have, have, have taken great leaps forward. They, the Ministry of Health in New Zealand advocates smokers to switch to vaping if they can't quit. They have a, a website, um, uh, what's it called? Um, we had it last show, yeah. Yes, um, but they have a website which says to smokers, look, if you can't quit, switch to vaping. It's clearly safer, works for many people. Look, vaping's not for non-smokers. And, and in Australia, we're seeing very little use by non-smokers. Um, and, and yet, for smokers, it, it's, it's, it's banned, um, whereas in other Western countries, it's like the UK, uh, it's encouraged. For, for as an alternative, as a safer alternative. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this now. First of all, I, I I want to I don't want to get off of the glory of the win a bit because it was a win. 
did you guys, is it fair to say that vapors kick their butt? Uh, yes. So this, I think, is a turning point in the debate in Australia. I, I think, as I said, for the last five or six years, we've been banging on about this, making small amounts of progress, but the opposition has remained united. And I, I, I think this has given the, um, the, the traditional opponents to vaping uh, something to think about. It shows that vapors are very concerned and motivated and that we really need to look at the evidence and the evidence that vaping is probably the most effective quitting aid available. It's the most popular quitting aid in other countries. And the other very important issue is that smoking is increasingly concentrated in uh, disadvantaged and marginalised groups in Australia. They have two or three times the smoking rate. And, and, and this population is being left behind. Um, later, the, the evidence now shows that this population is more likely to take up vaping and it'll help to reduce the, the social, financial and health inequalities that we see in Australia because of the high smoking rates. So uh, because smoking smokes are, are the highest priced uh, of all countries in the world. You know, a packet of 20 Marlboro is over $30. And that causes huge financial stress. And so switching to vaping saves the average smoker, you know, five to $10,000 a year. Uh, and for people who are struggling, and in the middle of a COVID epidemic, we're, we're in a recession. Um, you know, this is a really important issue. R real wage rises haven't risen for five years. And now we have high unemployment rates and people are struggling to pay mortgages. And to take away an opportunity for people to save heaps of money, uh, it, it's just really unfair. There's two parts to that. Uh, and I think the first part is that at what point does the government realize and the opposition uh, to vaping realize that when you increase the pack, the cost of a pack of cigarettes and it reaches a particular point mm -hmm. that it's mm -hmm. clear the person is addicted and cannot quit. What is that, $30 a pack, $100 a pack? How yeah. much blood money does a government yeah. and the opposition need to see lower-income people spending on a pack of cigarettes before they agree that not everybody can quit and safer alternatives yeah. are needed? Yeah, well, that's the thing. They're kind of stuck in their traditional tobacco control strategies, which have worked up till now. So we've got plain packaging. We've got the highest cigarette prices in the world. We've got strict tobacco control. And in spite of that, people are not quitting. And I think, I think you know, any, any, any person, sensible person would look at that and say, well, that's all right. It's not, and it's worked up till now, but it's not working like it did. I think with the cost of smoking, we know that smoking prices are a, a disincentive to quit. We know that as prices go up, people are more likely to try to quit. But... There's a point where, as you say, people are addicted, people who have wanted to quit and have been able to have, but there's still a very large population, 3 million smokers in Australia who, who, who are still willing to pay those prices or have no choice. I mean, they're addicted. And, you know, we, we, we're very punitive and coercive. We need to be more compassionate and find ways, more carrots, uh, to, to help them to quit. Uh, because clearly the price signal isn't enough. Isn't enough. It's helped some people, 
It's at the point where the people who really want to quit and need to quit because of price simply can't. Yeah, I mean, I'll share my own personal story uh, with quitting. It was finally, eventually, the price signal. And, you know, many, many years I'd gotten healthy in all the other areas of my life, and I still smoked. And But I was a two-pack-a-day smoker up until the moment that I quit in 2015. And I'd been that way for almost 20 years. And I could remember just a short time ago in 2011, 2012, still buying, you know, getting two packs of cigarettes for around 12 bucks. And then all of a sudden they were $16 each and it was close to $40 a day for me. And I'm just going, geez, I mean, this is a minor, this is a serious drug habit here when you're starting to get to that price. Yes. And it's a devastating financial cost for, for low income people who oh, yeah. have the heaviest smoking rates and the lowest quit rates. And, and they're really struggling. And, and, you know, there's a real social justice issue there. That's, that's uh, exactly it. Yeah, we're really punishing low-income people who are more addicted, who can't quit, and we're saying, well, well, you just have to keep quitting. You have to quit with all these things that we've, we've, we're, we're offering. Robert West did a review of success rates from Cochrane studies and found that the, the best available treatments we have have success rates of 2 to 15% long-term success rates. That's including varenicline, nicotine replacement therapies. And these treatments uh, are effective for some people, but not for most. And the quit rates are very modest. And it's not enough just to say, oh, we'll go and take some Campix or we'll go and take some nicotine replacement because that's not working for many of these people. So why is it then, considering when you look at the political makeup of the opposition to vaping, and it's the same in Australia as it is in Canada, in the US and elsewhere, there is a certain political side or penchant for thinking a certain way that seems to be anti-vaping. Now, those people tend to be very pro-social justice in so mm -hmm. many other issues, yet they mm -hmm. refuse to see the social justice connection when it comes to smoking yeah. and vaping. There's a real double standard, isn't there? Like, Australia's been generally strong on, on harm reduction. Um, you know, we support... Uh, uh, medically supervised injecting rooms, needle exchanges, um, and yet this is no different. And it's no—it's—it's it's even worse in that more lives could be saved by tobacco harm reduction than any of the other strategies that we we use. So um, it, it's very much a double standard. And I think, as I said, behind all that are all these other issues that uh, people should just quit, and we have treatments. And, and to some extent, we've been a victim of our own success in Australia. We were world leaders in, in bringing down smoking rates. And I think a lot of the people who have played a role in that will say that, look, we, we're doing very well without that. Look how well we've done. Our smoking rates have fallen dramatically. But they don't comment that actually that stopped now. Um, they sort of patting themselves on the back and thinking, well, we don't want to spoil our legacy, which was that, you know, we got people to quit and, and that we told them to do it and that's the way it should be done. Uh, this new method uh, doesn't suit our narrative. It doesn't support our legacy of having been successful. Uh, I think that's playing a role for, for certain uh, public health figures who, who are quite influential. So they don't, they had a win and it was, and yeah. they feel like it was a pretty big win. And, yeah. you know, allow me to say, because within public health, there's not a lot of really big wins out there. I mean, we, you know, you can rattle them off on two hands, maybe, maybe just one when yeah. you start to go through them all. 
most yeah. of them need a vaccine for the wind to happen. And so yeah. uh, the, the fight against the tobacco epidemic, it doesn't track in the same way as other public health uh, uh, wins happen where, you know, a vaccine, you go like that, man, our job's yeah. done. Smallpox is done. Yeah. And so they were kind of in that mode with, with tobacco, yeah. but yet it's not a vaccine solution. It's really a command and control solution. Exactly. I think this is, you know, and many people have said this, this is the uh, a public health change that could be bigger than anything else in terms of improving public health. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's criminal that we aren't allowing people to take this opportunity. And that brings me back to a point you made just a moment ago was that this is, a, this is still very much the war against uh, big tobacco. In Australia, I think a lot of our public health people have got locked into um, the war against big tobacco, against nicotine. Look, they've behaved appallingly and, and we hate big tobacco. But um, this is not about big tobacco. This is about saving lives. This is about finding alternative strategies which will help people to quit smoking. And I think we lose sight of the benefits to individuals in our hatred of big tobacco and our determination to destroy them. And, you know, personally, I think I'd much prefer big tobacco to make uh, money from safer alternatives and to stop making combustible cigarettes, which is, which is, the direction they're moving in. But people are saying, no, we don't trust them. We, anything they're involved with, we, we, we don't support. So we're going to, to um, campaign against this. Um, they need to think about the people. They need to think about my patients who have tried so many times repeatedly to quit smoking. I, I learned to hate smoking as a, as a kid. My father was a heavy smoker. But I learned to love vaping because I could see with my patients how people were finally able to give up smoking. And, and I, I think people in power need to think more about the individual um, members of the community who will benefit enormously from this. It's so strong to hear hatred for big tobacco, but yet that is what is pervasive throughout the culture. In a way, they're like the incarnation of a great evil. And yeah. by slaying yeah. big tobacco, almost yeah. in a really religious kind of crusade, um, yeah. you know, they've won this huge war against something that's evil, yeah. but yet it's, they can't allow it to slip back in through the back door. They're locked, into, they're locked into this moral crusade against big tobacco. That's always been the enemy. And they've taken their eye off the ball. The ball has moved into a different court now. And, um, you know, big tobacco is not the enemy now. The, 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 the goal is to save lives. And look, big tobacco may play a role in that. And uh, I, I think they will. But they still control only a very small part of the, um, the uh, e-cigarette market. So um, e-cig intelligence reports that less than 20% of, of vaping products are made by big tobacco. It's not a big tobacco conspiracy, which is what some people think. It's, it's a consumer-led movement to find uh, life-saving alternatives. Big Tobacco has had to get on board. They've had no choice. They'd have a Kodak moment and lose, their, lose their, their industry entirely. So they've had to get on board. And look, as I say, it's better if they stop making cigarettes and switch to non-combustibles. Uh, and that would save millions of lives. 
And it seems, though, that the opposition, so tobacco control, though, refuses to allow big tobacco to redeem itself. Yes. Oh, they, 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 they plan, their plan is to punish big tobacco. And as far as they're concerned, if they destroy big tobacco, they'll win. They've been trying to destroy big tobacco for the last 50 years. And big tobacco stocks have been the most best-performing sector of the, the stock market uh, for 100 years. Uh, you know, a dollar spent on big tobacco in 1900s worth six million dollars today. So it hasn't worked. We still have smoking is still the leading preventable cause of death in the world. So you know, we're not winning this war. We, a billion people are going to die this century from smoking under uh, on on the current trajectory. And if we don't do something different, it's 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 and it's a tragedy. So do you think that if, so let's look at like, say, Philip Morris for a second. I want to, and we just had, uh, and I want to talk a bit about the, the politics behind, you know, big tobacco being involved in the vaping industry and so forth, because, and, and let, me bring, let me bring it first to Australia. You mentioned that during these last 10 days and this big push, successful push you've had to push back on the government on this ban. So it's delayed and we'll wrap up today's show with the discussion about how the fight's not over, but let's just yeah. stay in this mode here for a second. Now, you had some success um, with social media and so forth, but I thought though that social media following the big, it's big tobacco, it's tobacco, so didn't they crush you guys? Like, did they allow you to buy ads? Did, did, are they not censoring in Australia? From everything we've heard, they've been really cracking down on pro-vaping messages in Australia on social media. Uh, well, not on social media. Right. We, we had a very strong presence on social media and also we had quite a few supportive pieces in the media. Surprisingly, the media has generally been very suspicious of vaping because they're following the government line, they're following the public health people who they've trusted before and, and generally you know, our approaches have been, been rejected. But we actually had uh, quite a number of op-ed pieces. We had uh, favourable reporting from um, uh, the mainstream media I think they started to realize that actually there was a there was more to this debate than meets the eye. So, and well, I'm pretty certain over the years here we've had um, reports that Facebook was really a problem in in Australia. In that, oh, yeah. oh, we, we we can't we can't promote vaping on Facebook. That's true, but I think the organic spread of of, of people's stories and and the messages and the facts about what was happening did you know was allowed and and did, did disseminate and and i think did make make a difference it really mobilized people okay so and i i bring this up because you know even worldwide obviously um with the who and the fctc uh they you know you are not allowed as a government to even be really <laughs> fully engaged with big tobacco on any level otherwise you know you're infringing on the framework talk to us mm. a little bit about that total global kind of regulatory mm. layer that really prevents a lot of discussion and, and maybe even some working together. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the views of the WHO are often thrown, thrown up against us. But what people forget is that Australia is a signatory to the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which is that health treaty to um, eliminate smoking. There are three pillars to that treaty, and, and signatures to the signatories to the treaty are, it, are mandatory. 
in that they need to follow the, the requirements of the treaty, and they are to reduce supply, demand, and to introduce tobacco harm reduction. So Australia, it's mandatory for Australia to have tobacco harm reduction as a signatory to the FCTC. Now, Australia talks about that in theory, but we have no tobacco harm reduction in practice. Uh, and there are other obligations, uh, other, uh, other um, the Australian uh, national tobacco strategy also includes harm reduction. Our drug strategy includes uh, harm reduction. And yet these are all, these are all uh, theoretical uh, obligations, but in practice they're not followed. And I think that's a, a significant um, deviation from, from normal practice. So how could, how could things change at a global level that will help Australia? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, in our last, we attempted to have nicotine removed from our poison standard about three years ago. And the part of the answer was, well, you know, other countries, just because other countries are doing it doesn't mean we should. You know, we have to make up our own decisions. So uh, our political leaders are quite happy to ignore uh, the influence of other countries when it suits them. Um, and, you know, they have been approached by New Zealand and the UK um, with, you know, uh, re recommendations, but uh, they remain defiant. Uh, you know, we don't need it in Australia. We've been so successful. And they're all wrong anyway. Uh, and we'll find out in time. You know, quite a few of our leaders have said this. We'll find out in time. They're wrong. They've rushed into this too quickly. And we... We, we will be proven right in the long term. Let me ask you uh, about the messaging. So harm reduction here in North America for certain, we've noticed, well, that was the best way we've noticed. It's clear that the majority or at least the part of public health and the regulatory bodies that make the decisions refuse to accept vaping as a tool for harm reduction. They just outright reject it. And as you mentioned before, in Australia, as well as here in Canada, in the US and elsewhere, they may be very open to harm reduction when it comes to say heroin and needles and so forth. But when it comes to nicotine, they just refuse to. Why? Yeah, look, as, as Alex Wodak, uh, one of our leading harm reduction experts said recently in, in an op-ed, um, nicotine for vaping is the methadone for street heroin. Yeah, it, it's no different. Um, that they're just locked into this ideological position and you know really the evidence just doesn't break through so the health minister justified these recent changes by two main arguments one was the 78 percent increase in smoking in the most recent uh, national youth tobacco survey now we know actually in the most recent survey it was actually an increase in youth vaping of about 27%, in fact. So that's not true. It was only much more recent. The much more recent figure was much less, but an increase in vaping in young high schoolers. But what no one mentions is that vaping, smoking rates in high schoolers in the US fell last year by 25%. So, you know, it, it's, it's a, a nonsense argument out of context. You've got to recognise that the evidence suggests that vaping is diverting young people from smoking. And, um, you know, vaping, most young people smoke before they vape. Uh, very, 
most vaping is by uh, young people who, who are already smokers and um, regular use by non-smokers is rare. So this is kind of a, a misuse of the evidence. And the other argument he gives is that in Victoria, one of our states, he says there was a doubling of poisoning rates from nicotine uh, in from no, 2018 to 2019. The number he quoted was 41 cases of poisoning. Of course, almost all of those were minor. Um, very few people were hospitalised. We had one death in Australia last year in 2018 from very highly concentrated nicotine, which was imported in a childproof, child non-childproof bottle because we can't buy low concentrations of nicotine in Australia from vape shops in childproof containers. So the argument about poisoning, and I looked up the figures, the latest figures from the US um, of poisoning from national poisoning centres, in their report, there were no deaths from nicotine poisoning in the whole of the US where they have over 12 million smokers, uh, vapors. Um, there were about 1,300 deaths from poisoning, not a single death from nicotine. So I need, think we need to keep this in perspective. I mean, these are emotional arguments that are thrown up without context. And, and, uh, and unfortunately, that's the level of the debate that we, 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 we're having. Yeah. I I, I'm going re, to reserve my comment uh, on that because I'm just going to reserve my comment. Uh, let me, on a side thing, the U.S., um, during the scare of all of the um, explosions of e-cigarettes and the fires and all that stuff that it caused, I think it was in 2018 maybe, I got my hand, hands on a, a federal report uh, from all the firefighting uh, firefighters across the country, and there was four. There was four examples of real e-cigarettes causing some fires. Anybody died? No, nobody died. Anybody, you know, all that stuff. And so, but meanwhile, it leads headlines, right? That's right. The London Fire Brigade encourages people for, to switch from smoking to vaping. I mean, smoking causes uh, more house fires than anything else and deaths from it than anything else. Uh, the, there's not one death from vaping in, in the world. No, not one confirmed death from vaping. I mean, the perspective is... These are kind of emotional arguments by people who are looking for ways to justify their ideological position. And when you drill down into the detail, uh, and it's like it's like Ivali, um, you know, this was continuously linked to nicotine vaping, with which it had no association. In Australia, our chief medical officer uh, came out publicly and said, "We're concerned about vaping because of the risk to lung health." From look at all these people dying in the US. And there was still a link on the government, not a link, a, 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 um, a statement on the government website uh, referring to nicotine vaping as a cause of serious lung injuries. It hasn't been removed. And we've asked for it to be removed because it's dishonest and misleading. And uh, it's still there. So that's the sort of level of debate we're getting. If we look at the evidence, um, the evidence supports vaping. But these um, emotional arguments, which are not based on evidence, are being thrown up. And unfortunately, they make the headlines. They make good sensational media headlines and get lots of clicks. But they're not doing a service to, to Australian smokers. So if the fight's not over, why not? Well, in Australia, it's not over because we have this continuing ideological 
um, war against tobacco companies and nicotine. Um, we're not yet at the stage where we're looking at the evidence. And I think if you look dispassionately at the evidence, um, and you know, this side, slide shows that we, we're worried about big tobacco, we're worried about um, sticking with our tribal views. So if you're a member of the Cancer Council and you sort of decide that actually maybe there's some evidence, that's not going to go down well. Um, people are worried about the status quo. They, they make all these unfounded claims about nicotine, which we used to think was harmful, now we know it's not. And um, all, all these views are, are, are congealed into that position, creating that position of, oh, vaping must be bad for you, it's the tobacco companies are behind it, um, and, and we, we can't allow it. Yeah, it's entrenched, isn't it? Uh, the public health tobacco control health departments with the big brain. <laughs> that yes. maybe maybe yes. not quite a brain. I understand what you're getting at there, but they're not being too smart. No. no. I think they're just stuck in their traditional model. You know, they've always done it the other way. They've always believed the enemies of big tobacco, nicotine's dangerous, people shouldn't use addictive drugs. It's it's morally wrong. Um um, you know, what about the kids might get involved? Um, and, and all of that stuff is, is pushing them. And, and I think they're blind. They've been blinded to the evidence, which is growing enormously. And uh, I mean, the evidence from research and the evidence from the real world, where we see vaping actually is working uh, and, and the harms are small. Yeah, there's a growing kind of uh, sentiment that I've been hearing. We heard some of it from Dr. Derek Yock, who's on the show last week, who's the founder and president of Foundation for a Smoke-Free World. And it was kind of like a, a, a message that all of this opposition doesn't really matter. The, you know, the, the, the barn doors open, the horses are out. I mean, there are things moving forward uh, that are going to just be overwhelming for the marketplace. Uh, I'm characterizing, paraphrasing some of the things he said there. Does that ring true at all for you? Um, I, I'm actually not sure what you mean, Fred. Well, it means that the, that the big tobacco companies have got it and they're working on it, and 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 that there's other players in play that that the science, the marketplace, innovation, all of that mm -hmm. stuff will eventually roll over the this progressive nanny state attitude that seems oh, to be, yes. you know, holding vaping back. Yes, yes, absolutely. Look, again, Alex Wydak, who is, is again, one of our leading health um, tobacco harm reduction and harm reduction experts, has seen this many times. I mean, he often says to us, look, he's been fighting, you know, harm reduction battles for 30 years. And every time a new and innovative and disruptive harm reduction strategy comes, comes forward, there's this inevitable hostile resistance to it. And um, people throw all sorts of ridiculous arguments at it. Uh, and they're all pretty similar to what we see today. Like if people wear seatbelts, well, they're going to drive faster and it's going to cause more harm, um, that sort of thing. And what he says is that these campaigns will win because eventually it'll become clearer and clearer. The problem is that with tobacco harm reduction, every year we wait, people are dying. So yes, we'll look back in 15 years time and say, well, that was a good idea. Why didn't we do that before? Uh, and each year, of course, 8 million people or more will die every year uh, while we wait. But uh, yeah, we, 
Alex keeps telling us, be patient, it will happen, but it won't happen tomorrow. Um, because the pattern is very typical across all the harm reduction campaigns uh, over the years. And final question then, with regards to Australia, if this is just a reprieve, how are you going to fight the next battle? Well, Brett, we don't want to give all our secrets away, but um, as they say in Seinfeld, we have plans. <laughs> and uh, our plan is to continue to fight this campaign now that we've mobilised the vapors, I think the vapors realise this is serious and they'll, they'll need to come forward and be heard. Um, we need to work together. We've got a number of organisations that are willing to um, take action. You know, there are legal options um, and there are regulatory options and we will be continuing because I think this is a turning point. I think finally the government has heard us and, and I have to say, all credit to Greg Hunt for reversing his decision. He was under enormous pressure and uh, he listened to, to, to the evidence, he listened to the, uh, the voices of the Australians and he made the decision. And I'm hoping that, that common sense, and, and, common sense and, and evidence will prevail so that we will be able to, to, to finally uh, overturn this. And, in, and we're hoping that in January we, we won't need to see this uh, all happen again. Well, that's excellent. Well, some great news uh, in Australia. Dr. Mendelson, thanks for coming back on the show and just hang right there for me for one second. And that is it for this edition of RegWatch. Now, before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com and consider making a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. It's easy. Just dig into your wallet, find a few dollars and toss them our way. You'll be happy you did. And so will we. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and please subscribe to our YouTube